Welcome to Unity of Fairfax, a positive path for spiritual living and spiritual center for education, practice, and service in Northern Virginia. We hope you find inspiration in this week's message. Well, can I get an amen? Wow, what a beautiful song. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Bailey, for adding to it. It's the truth and something we teach here in Unity. What are we telling ourselves? What's alive in here and here that is empowering or disempowering? Our teachings are all about helping each and every one of us to identify what is life-affirming within us and in the world and what is not so that we can decide where to put our energy, where to put our attention, and what decisions to make that will allow us to have life and have it abundantly. Our teaching here in Unity is that the nature of God is altogether good, and each one of us is an individualized expression of that at our core, at our truth. So it behooves us to understand and recognize those times when we may have adopted a viewpoint that is contrary to that. It is appropriate for us when we recognize that groups that we are a part of may have had less than opinions put upon us. And to use the truth and to use our inherent empoweredness to make a difference to lift ourselves and everyone else out of the illusion that we are not enough, that we are not loved, that we are not good. That's what we are about in the unity movement. There are a lot of other people about that as well, working with individuals and with groups on the collective level to raise the consciousness of all of humanity to that point of peace, abundance, and respect for all creation. Sixty years ago, on August 28th, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was held. 250,000 people, the largest peacetime march to date, brought individuals together to demand an end to segregation, fair wages, economic justice, voting rights, education, and long overdue civil protections. We are very fortunate that several members of Unity of Fairfax who are in this room were there. And over the course of this month, every Sunday, I've asked some of them to share what that experience meant to them, what it means for us today. Because on Saturday, August 26, members of Unity Churches and Centers from the DMV, District Maryland and Virginia, for those of you who are at home who were thinking Department of Motor Vehicles, no. District, Maryland, Virginia. I just want to clarify that misconception. Like, why are they all going to the driver's license branch? We're not going to the driver's license branch. District, Maryland, Virginia will be participating in the continuation, the 60th March. One of those individuals who had a connection is one of our prayer chaplains, Patty Hagan. She's going to share with us today about that. Me so I can reach it, Andy. <laughs> that would that works better. So can you all hear me? Because it's a different mic. Okay, thank you. The summer of '63 was a very interesting one, especially for me. I graduated from the eighth grade, and then a few weeks later, my parents drove me to the Greyhound bus station in D.C., where I, all by myself, took a bus to Philadelphia, transferred there, took another bus to Cape May, New Jersey 
to visit my best friend from seventh grade who'd moved back up there when her dad got transferred back to the Coast Guard station. I was really looking forward to the trip because my friend had told me we could walk or bike to the beach, to the boardwalk, to town, and do all kinds of fun things on our own without anybody having to give us a ride anywhere. It was a wonderful week, including that I met my first boyfriend, but that's another story for another day, <laughs> which we won't go into. When I got home, though, it was very, very boring. The previous August, my parents had moved and bought their only house they ever owned in Springfield, Virginia, which in 1962 was kind of the end of the earth. The belt, it wasn't open completely. There was almost no traffic on the parts that were open. And unlike where we had lived in Fairlington, which is in South Arlington, just, just next to Sherlington, I had lots of places I could walk to. I could go all kinds of places. My friends and I could hop on the bus, going to DC, hop on the bus and go down to Alexandria. But where I lived then, Springfield, there's nothing. We know where to go. When I heard about the march on Washington, I wanted to go so badly. I was well aware of segregation and discrimination. I'd seen it firsthand in Alexandria when I was in school there and saw it on the news almost every single night. I wanted to be part of that march for the changes that I knew were so important. If we hadn't moved, I could have walked to the corner, hopped on a bus, gone downtown, the six-mile trip to D.C., and joined the march. Now, though, the closest bus stop was about four miles away and only ran on weekends during rush hour. Obviously, my parents would have to take me someplace to get a bus into the city because, of course, there was no metro then. And uh, I knew my parents wouldn't want to drive into the city because they didn't like to anyway. And they were already talking about all the roads that would be closed because all these thousands of people were going to be coming. I begged and I pleaded for them to take me to the march or someplace where I could get a bus. They were insistent that I couldn't go. When I asked why, they said there were going to be too many people and there was likely to be trouble. I also somehow didn't belong at the march. And for some reason, they never answered when I asked them what that meant. When the day of the march came, I sort of moped around my room like only a 14-year-old can do. I couldn't understand how the same people who allowed me to take buses on my own to Philly and Cape May for a week in June wouldn't allow me to go to DC for an afternoon in August. It didn't make any sense to my 14-year-old mind. When we watched the news that night, the report showed a huge crowd of people around the reflecting pool at the base of the Lincoln Memorial. There were banners all over the place for jobs and freedom, as well as many other banners. And there were men and women and children from all over the country, from all racial and religious backgrounds. And of course, it was totally peaceful. Not how my parents and the news people had said it would be. The news had snippets of some of the entertainers that day, including Mahalia Jackson, Marian Anderson, and folk protest singers Joan Baez, Peter Paul and Mary, and Bob Dylan, who were already some of my favorite singers. The news also had recordings of some of the speakers. The last one they showed, of course, was parts of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
I have a dream speech. When the news segment was over, I turned to my parents almost in tears and told them that I wished I'd been there. They reiterated the fears of violence the newscasters had discussed and said they were glad it was peaceful. And then they said something about, even though it was quiet and peaceful, there were undesirable people there. They chose not to explain what that meant when I asked. So 10 years ago, when the 50th anniversary of the march was announced, I went. It was a wonderful afternoon of speeches and songs. I also talked to several people who had been there for the original march and some whose parents and grandparents had been there. I learned so much, and it made me wish even more that I'd been able to be there. President Barack Obama, our first African-American president, signed a proclamation for the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Part of that proclamation was reminded in a call to action, which I quote, the coalition that brought about civil rights understood that racial equality and fairness for workers are bound together. When one American gets a raw deal, it jeopardizes justice for everyone. These are lessons we carry forward, that we cannot march alone, that America flourishes best when we acknowledge our common humanity, that our future is linked to the destiny of every soul on earth. And so, ladies and gentlemen, our job continues. Until everyone has jobs and freedom, no one is truly free. Let's work together to create a world that truly, truly works for everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. It's going to be a fascinating month of sharing and eye-opening conversation. Let's change gears. Have you ever used the phrase or heard somebody use the phrase, I got your back? Anybody? Okay, so head's nodding. How many of you are familiar with rapper T.I.'s song, Got Your Back? Okay, well, just Jan Hilton. All right, so Jan and I are the, are, are the rappers here. It's a great song. Check it out. We would sing it in church. There's one or two words that just won't quite fit in our particular setting. But whenever we say, I got your back, what we're saying is, I'm pledging emotional support. I'm pledging, pledging physical support. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be, help you through good times and in bad. It's an important phrase, and it's an important image. Images matter. You know, we often talk about the phrase about uh, backs against the wall. Have you ever heard that one? Theologian Howard Thurman writes a lot about this expression in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that was published in 1949. A little bit about Howard Thurman, one of my favorite theologians who I've referenced him often. He was a college roommate of Martin Luther King Sr. and a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. The book that we're referencing, Jesus and the Disinherited, was one that uh, Dr. King had with him quite often. One of the things he says in this book is the masses of men, and he's using, that's how they spoke, so we'll say men and women, so I'm not trying to leave the ladies out, and he wasn't either. The masses of men live with their backs against the wall. They are the poor, the disinherited, and the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? 
The issue is not what it counsels them to do to others or for others whose need is greater, but what religion offers to meet their own needs. The search for an answer to this question is perhaps the most important religious quest in modern life. And each of one of us, in some way, shape, form, may have at one time or another considered ourselves poor or disinherited or dispossessed, whether that experience was between our ears or something that was a lived experience. How does faith have a practical application in your life to allow you to have an abundant life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life? What does it say to you in the here and now? That is the question Thurman was seeking to answer. And he was inspired by, to answer this question because of a pilgrimage, a peace pilgrimage he made with several other students in 1935 to India, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka, at the times referred to as uh, Burma and Ceylon. He was at the law school at the University of Colombo in Sri Lanka, where he was asked by one of the principal instructors there, how is it that you can be a Christian? Considered Christianity's role in slavery all those years. He even added to Thurman, sir, I think you are a traitor to the darker peoples of the earth. Thurman goes on to recount that they had a conversation that lasted more than five hours and that conversation became the impetus for the book Jesus and the Disinherited. So how does this March on Washington, Jesus and the Disinherited, and unity fit together? How do all these pieces coalesce like a hand in glove? Unity does have an answer to Thurman's question about what our religion offers to the dispossessed and the poor and the disinherited. And it's an answer we offer to everyone who is seeking to have a full and meaningful life. A short form answer to this is summed up in our little elevator speech, that unity is a positive, practical, progressive approach to Christianity based on the teachings of Jesus and the power of prayer. Unity honors the universal truths in all religions and respects each individual's right to choose a spiritual path. Thurman comments, the basic fact is that Christianity, as it was in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker, appears as a technique of survival for the dispossessed. That it became, through the intervening years, a religion of the powerful and dominant used sometimes as an instrument of oppression, must not tempt us into believing it was thus in the mind and in the life of Jesus. And I'm sure all of us can count examples that we can have witnessed ourselves or know about from history, where religion and Christianity in particular was used for means other than edifying and building up people. And we still see it today, unfortunately. And it's one of the reasons why many people are leaving the church. Our unity teachings, just as those presented by Howard Thurman that we'll address in a few moments, are geared towards helping individuals manifest and demonstrate powerful transformations in their lives. 
that is freeing ourselves from the backs against the wall experience where we've been backed into a corner. Whether that, again, is an outer experience because of our thought process and what we've chosen unconsciously to believe or what may have been thrust upon us from the outer world. And this liberation, this freedom is predicated upon understanding spiritual principles and having the discipline and the courage to put them into practice. If it were up to me, I would make this book required reading for everybody in unity. So there you go. There's your homework. Read the book. There you go. Get it at the library. Get it wherever you get it. Additionally, unity's fifth principle reminds us that it is not just enough to know the truth. We must live the truth we know. We must apply the principles in our own lives for our own benefit and the benefit of those in our immediate circle, but also collectively. So that, as Patty shared in her comments, we do co-create a world of peace, abundance, and respect for all creation. Whether they're Christian or not, whether they're atheist or not, it doesn't matter. Everybody matters. Everybody has importance. Everybody has worth, as we heard about in this beautiful song. Knowing the truth about ourselves is what we're about. I so love that dictum put forward by Dr. Cornell West, who says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Fairness to all. Equanimity to all. So Thurman says that in order to understand Jesus, there are some factors we need to know about him, maybe separate and distinct from what we may have been taught. The first as we've often said here, is that Jesus was Jewish. And at no time in his life did he ever claim to be anything else. He offered interpretations of the teaching that he received, which is a very typically Jewish thing to do. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Very typical. We do the same thing in unity. We call it metaphysical interpretation of Scripture. It's the same thing. Another important fact, and it is a very important fact, Jesus was poor. We don't often talk about that a whole lot. And we know this because in the book of Luke, when his family brought him to the temple for the dedication, they had a choice of which offering to make. The, the Jewish law of the time was very clear about that. There was the rich person's offering, which was a lamb, the poor people's offering, which was either two doves or two pigeons. They brought the poor person's offering. He understood what it was like not to be in the elite. And thirdly, he grew up in a world of foreign occupation, where the leaders of the time collaborated with the occupiers. These are factors that are very important for us to be aware of because they surely must have influenced his teaching. Just as the factors of our day, the news of the day, pick a story or another, some social trend. It impacts how we think about ourselves. It impacts how we experience divinity. Don't think that these things do not impact us. They do. Whether they're options, opportunities for jobs or voting or opportunities to acquire wealth or not. So how did he keep from being overwhelmed? And how do we keep from being overwhelmed? with all the facts of the day, 
all the news of the day because it is overwhelming, especially, I mean, fortunately, they didn't have a 24-hour news cycle then. Most of people couldn't read. We've got our Apple Watches and our cell phones and our things that bleep and blop 24-7 reminding us of something or another. As he did, we go apart for a while. We engage in our spiritual practices. We go into that silent space of simply being. Humans being. Connecting and communing with God as we understand God to be and God as we don't understand God to be. In the silence. And in our practice, however it is moved in our hearts. Thurman says that Jesus' message focused on the radical change in the inner attitude of the people. He recognized that out of the heart are the issues of life and that no external force, however great and overwhelming, can at long last destroy a people or a person if it does not first win the victory of the Spirit over them. What he's talking about is consciousness both personal and collective. The moral imperative to know thyself so that we do not unconsciously give up our autonomy of thought or feeling and fall victim to what Thurman calls the three hounds of hell, fear, deceit, and hatred. By grounding ourselves in the love that God is, in the power that God is, we will not be overcome. And in fact, we shall overcome. Not just someday, but today. With increasing insight and startling accuracy, he, being Jesus, placed his finger on the inward center as the crucial arena where the issues would determine the destiny of his people. Your destiny, my destiny, our destiny is determined by our capacity to connect with something larger than ourself, something beautiful, something inclusive, something welcoming something that knows that the kingdom of heaven already exists right here and right now. It is at our hands, and it's up to us to bring it into physical form. And we can only do that if our hearts and our minds are prepared and open to the divine guidance that will allow us to let love lead always so that we do not fall victim to fear deceit, and hatred. We'll have more to say about that in the coming weeks. But before we do, I invite you to join me in a moment of prayer. Closing your eyes if that's comfortable for you and taking a deep and gentle breath and giving thanks that wherever we are, love is. That when we become still and are not looking for anything in particular, we can see everything. See the coherent wholeness and holiness of the universe. And be open to the ways in which our own uniqueness contributes to that. 
and contributes to not only our own peace of mind, but the peace of mind of others around us because we have said yes to being conduits of love. That we have said we will not allow fear and deceit and hatred to take root in our hearts but allow them to pass by and to fade into the nothingness out of which they came. Our prayer today is that the love that we are lights the love that is in the world so that all may know peace. All will know their wholeness. All will know their holiness. And all will know, truly, life is good. Let it be so. This is the prayer and the affirmation we make in and through the power of the living Christ. And so it is. And so we let it be. Amen. Thank you for tuning into Unity of Fairfax podcast. You're welcome to join us live in Oakton, Virginia, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Or view our live stream services from our website at unityoffairfax.org. We appreciate our donations to support this podcast to make our message of positive, practical spirituality more accessible to all. See you next time.